Hi, everybody. It is Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. I am the founder of the Revenue Collective, which is the exclusive community for commercial executives at growth companies. We're in Boston, Denver, Toronto, New York, London, and Amsterdam. I'm also the host of this podcast. Today, we've got a great show. We've got Brian Burkett, who's the SVP of sales at Lean Data. Lean Data is an infrastructure company that sits between basically your marketing automation and Salesforce and helps ensure lead to account routing and mapping uh, works really, really well. It's particularly useful for companies that are employing account-based marketing strategies. They're growing really, really quickly. And Brian has a lot of great insights over the course of his career, but particularly from the time when he came out of school and he went to work at Interwoven and then he went to work at Hot Jobs and uh, and through a bunch of uh, opportunities. And he's now been at Lean Data for five and a half years. And he talks to us about sort of what, why and how he builds and leads great teams and why he believes that people over-index on experience over hunger, drive, motivation. And that's why his top performing reps are all people that came in as SDRs into the organization. So it's a great interview. Now, of course, we want to thank our sponsors. The first is Chorus.ai. If you're not using Chorus yet, uh, why not? They are the leading conversation intelligence platform. They are for high growth sales teams. Chorus records, transcribes, and analyzes business conversations in real time to coach reps on how to become top performers. With Chorus, more reps meet quota, new hires ramp faster, leaders become better coaches, and everyone in the organization can collaborate over the actual voice of the customer. So check out chorus.ai forward slash saleshacker to see what they're up to. Our second sponsor is outreach.io, and that is outreach. We know outreach. They're the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach supports sales reps by enabling them to humanize communication at scale. And from automating the soul-sucking manual work, so all the shit work Outreach takes a lot of that away from you so that you can focus on action-oriented, value-added activities that drive results. Outreach has your back if you're a sales professional. Coming up in March, Outreach is running Unleash 2019. This is their the great sales engagement conference. And it's going to take place March 10th through 12th in San Diego. So write that down, March 10th through 12th. Listeners of the pod get $100 off simply for entering the code SHPOD. Hop over to unleash.outreach.io and use the code SHPOD to save $100 off your ticket. Finally, I hope that you've been nominating people for the Sales Hacker Top 50 Awards. We are, we are doing it. We did it last year. We're doing it again. Please nominate your colleagues or yourselves. Uh, winners will be featured on this very podcast and will receive other exciting prizes of which we do not know, but certainly recognition will be coming your way and bestowed upon you. So get nominating. You can nominate at saleshacker.com forward slash nominate. I also want to thank some of the folks that have been writing in. So uh, Jackson Jose Chavez from the company Clockwork. Thanks for, for chiming in. He, he's at a new job and a new role and, and really has been deriving a lot of value from the guests on the show. Justin Pulgrano, Tyler Gregerson, uh, Matthew Finch-Noyes in Toronto, who, uh, who may end up joining the Toronto Revenue Collective, Alex Von Hagen, and Alex, I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, Wichpalek, Wichpalek, at Collective Eye. The head of that company, Steve Denton, is someone that I'm very close with uh, as well. He's, a, he's an incredible person and he's been a guest on the show. So uh, Jackson, Justin, Tyler, Matthew, Alex, and Alex, thanks so much for uh, for reaching out. Um, we, we love that you're listening and um, I hope you nominated yourself for the Sales Hacker Top 50 Awards. Now, this has been a lot of my talking. Uh, we were listening to the podcast earlier this morning, me and my wife. 
and normally she doesn't listen and she commented at the intro this is a lot of talking why don't why do you talk so much and uh, so i'll stop now let's listen to the interview with brian burkett Hey, everybody, it's Sam Jacobs, and welcome back to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We've got a great show for you today. We've got Brian Burkett, who's the SVP of sales at Lean Data. Brian is a longtime sales executive and sales leader. He's responsible for leading global revenue at Lean Data. Now, prior to Lean Data, he led a team of uh, senior enterprise reps responsible for LinkedIn's largest West Coast customers. So he worked for LinkedIn, and he brings a diverse background in sales management experience, spanning from startups to large public companies in both field and inside sales. His previous employers include Truebates, Yahoo, Interwoven, and the great state of California. And I could do my uh, Schwarzenegger accent there, but I won't. Uh, Brian, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We're uh, we are excited for it, and we're excited to learn more about Lean Data. So we start the show with the baseball card, which is to help us contextualize your expertise. So your your name, did I, first of all, is it Burkett or Burkett? How do you prefer it's the pronoun? It's Burkett. Okay, sorry. So I will get better. I'm not going to get better right now. <laughs> Brian Burkett, SVP of Sales, Lean Data. What is Lean Data? Tell us about that company. So Lean Data is the leader in helping you manage your your go-to-market strategy and a platform for revenue ops leaders. So uh, we are helping companies through complex lead-to-account matching and sophisticated lead routing and an attribution suite better automate their go-to-market processes to ensure that leads get to the right reps at the right time every time, and then also help marketers better understand the efficacy of their campaigns through deep analytics around campaign attribution and other solutions like that. Did I see on link, is it, is it focused on account-based marketing and maybe is it related to the, the, the separation between leads and contacts and Salesforce? It is. So we, we solve that data moat between leads and accounts. And it's really where we got sort of, our, sort of our foundation. And anyone that's running account-based marketing wants to be able to make that connection. So we're not an ABM platform in that we're doing um, advertisements or running plays. We are the infrastructure that allows you to do all of that. So without connecting your leads to accounts, you have disparate objects inside your CRM. And you can't run those campaigns. So we are tied in very closely. We've got a lot of friends that have ABM, and we partner with them to provide that infrastructure, like I said, so that you can run those campaigns. Very good. Uh, and I, I might ask you uh, a few more questions about what exactly is ABM from your perspective. But how big is Lean Data? What's sort of like a, it's a SaaS business, I would imagine. What's the uh, ARR range? Yeah, so right now we're in that 10 to 15 million ARR, closer to 15 million, which is really exciting having been there since we were zero. Uh, <laughs> we're, nine, we're 95 total employees today. We've raised 16 million in total. We've got some great investors. Uh, our lead investor is Shasta Ventures. We've had follow on rounds from Sapphire Ventures, which is the SAP venture arm, uh, and then Felicious Ventures as well. What else can I tell you? You can tell me how big your team is, what functions you have on the team, sort of like SDRs, ADRs. Just walk us through the structure and the organization of the team, and if there's a focus on mid-market versus enterprise versus SMB, just so we can, again, uh, using that word again, but contextualize. 
Perfect. So uh, the way we have structured our go-to-market is that on the new business side, we're primarily an outbound organization. So today we're tied one-to-one AE to ADR. So we have about 15 total AEs and 15 ADRs. We do have two segments. So we go after the mid-market, which is characterized as accounts with employee size from 100 to 2,000. Okay. And we have both a mid-market team and an ADR team that focuses on the mid-market. And then we have our enterprise team, which is focused on accounts 2,000 employees and above. In addition to that, we have a strong revenue operations team that supports us. We're building out an AM function that focuses on upsell. We have a CSM function that is sort of rolls into our, our customer org that focuses on you know, customer success and retention. And um, the company's been around for eight years now. Okay, got it. So w- walk us through your background. We can, um, we can look you up on LinkedIn and figure out, you know, I guess you went to AU. So are you from the DC area? I actually grew up in the Bay Area. But as it turns out, my, my mother worked for Stanford. And so they paid half of the equivalency of half of Stanford's tuition to wherever you want to go. So oh, wow. um, at the time I was into politics and so I chose uh, American. So how, walk us through the journey from American many years ago, but not, we won't say exactly how many you can find that on LinkedIn if you're a loyal listener, but that journey from undergrad to where you are now. And from your perspective, what, what are the key milestones or inflection points along the way that helped take you to this point in your career? Yeah, so I would say there was a couple things that sort of brought me into sales. Uh, one, being an international relations major, a uh, fraternity uh, recruitment chair, and fraternity president sort of led me to, uh, when I was looking for opportunities, I sort of gravitated towards sales roles. And as I mentioned earlier, how my mom worked at Stanford, she was able to get me into the Stanford job board. And so um, having sort of a general degree sales opportunities or sort of entry-level sales were ones that I was getting calls called back from. But the real reason I got into sales is because in high school, or let's see, my second to last year of college, I put a deposit with my best friend on San Francisco Giants tickets because they were moving to 18, or at the time it was Pac Bell Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't want to miss that. And I flew home from school for the first week to open the stadium And I bumped into one of my high school buddies who said, hey, you probably need a job. Uh, I'm working for a software company and I'll get $3,000. If you don't like it, just quit after three months. (laughs) So um, there's a couple things that led to that. But the opportunity to work with some of my best friends in a fun environment where – you know, we were making a lot of money right out of school. You know, my parents were elementary school educators and administrators. And that's sort of how I got into it and, and why I liked it at the beginning. And so how did you walk us through sort of like your career and the major milestones? It looks like you spent five years at Yahoo. So tell us about that experience yeah. and the journey, particularly from kind of entry level rep to enterprise rep to manager. Walk us through that journey. Yeah, so my journey starts, like I said, at Interwoven. And um, in the early, well, like back in 2000, they were labeled as the fastest growing software company in Silicon Valley. So it was a chance to see what high growth sales was, sort of without any exposure to corporate sales. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, 
after 9-11, I decided to go back to what I studied and took a job working for a California state senator hmm. uh, and try to save the state, if not the world. Um, <laughs> after, um, I wouldn't call it flaming out of that role, but, um, you know, being politely asked to move on after, um, you know, not not being all that passionate about some of the issues we were trying to tackle, I made my way back to sales because I realized that at the time, and I didn't appreciate this as an early stage professional, is that one, it, it came natural to me. It was relatively easy. And man, if you want to stay in the Bay Area, you have to make a decent amount of money. Yeah. Um, so, you know, having worked for the senator who, who did does amazing, amazing stuff and is now a congresswoman, um, you know, it was sort of, asked of me to make a move, but you know, I made the decision to go back into sales. And at the time I chose Yahoo hot jobs. And so my Yahoo story starts uh, on market street in San Francisco. That was worse than it is now. And almost in mid market in this overheated giant sales floor with Ikea desks next to each other, where you could touch the two people sitting next to you. There was one bathroom stall like in the middle of the office and there was like a dirty coffee pot. But I walked in there, sort of sized up this opportunity and was like, there was a buzz about this place. I was like, this is what I want to do. And so that was the hot jobs group of Yahoo. In some ways, it was a stepchild because we weren't on the main campus in Sunnyvale. We had our own individual culture. It was a sales culture with amazing leaders. And it was in downtown San Francisco. So at the time... This was prior to a lot of tech being in the city. So culturally was the reason I took that job. And then the other thing is I was interviewing. I knew that at some point I wanted to lead, lead a sales team. I came to that conclusion in my first job and I sort of sized up the opportunity and the folks that were working with me. And it's like, okay, these are people I can spend the next few years with so that I can build a foundation and, and get that opportunity to manage and build my own team. So it started as a lowest level sort of uh, SDR, moved into a closing role after three or four months. It was like an SMB account executive. I was selling to small staffing companies that were like one man shops. So getting honed in on sort of how to do the transactional business, how to uh, negotiate, but just getting a lot of uh, at bats, if you will. From there, I moved into like a hybrid inside outside role, which we called a key account ex executive working on sort of a mid tier accounts. I got exposure to um, some customers. And then I finally got the opportunity to take over a team while the manager went on maternity leave. And so for the first time, I got my chance to take over a team. It was really difficult because I was managing my peers you know, and we were young, crazy and fun. And then all of a sudden you're thrown into this leadership position. And like I said, that's what I always wanted to do. So I think, you know, in some ways it came naturally and I, I thrived in that role. When the woman came back from maternity leave, I was able to keep the team. She was able to get promoted to field sales, which was a great way to keep her around. And then from there, it was just sort of like this meteoric rise where every year I had a different job. So I think at Yahoo, in the seven years, I had like eight different roles where it went, you know, inside sales manager. And then I got pulled into this offsite and they're like, guess what? You're now a field sales manager and here's your new team and half of them sit in New York. So I got the opportunity to sort of uh, manage remote folks. 
and then I got promoted to director, which led the entire sort of West Coast inside sales team. So at that point, I had like 36 reps, three managers, you know, a, a lot larger revenue responsibility. But at that point, Yahoo wasn't doing so well. Um, and so they had they were going through all the motions and they decided to divest our business line to Monster. So I went through an acquisition, had to manage through that, but ultimately decided that for me to succeed, I wanted to build my own team from scratch. So rather than stay on with Monster or go to LinkedIn, which at the time was like 800 employees and where a lot of my reps went, I decided to go to a, a Series A startup uh, called Truebates. And this one was backed by NEA Ventures. Scott Sandell was on the board and Shasta Ventures, Robbie Mohan, who was the secondary investor. And this business was awesome. It was Groupon meets Amazon. So now I'm not even closing deals anymore. I'm just building a team of really junior right out of college folks to cold call into small, like tiny SMB businesses and stock the shelves for our e-commerce platform. So, you know, we're calling salons, we're signing up haircuts, waxes, massages, all these things. And at the time we were competing head to head from Groupon and we had launched like seven cities. We grew, grew that team to about 40, but unfortunately we didn't make it. That one shut down. I was having my second kid. So I went back to, to LinkedIn to land and do ideally do something a little bit more stable. But I had stayed in touch with Ravi at Shasta and we were having breakfast quarterly. And I had this phenomenal team at LinkedIn that really didn't need to be managed. They were going to hit their numbers sort of regardless. And so when the opportunity to get introduced to Evan, who was the CEO of Lean Data, came along, I jumped at it. And so, um, you know, my heart is in the in the early stage. And I think building something when, you know, there's no guarantees and you got to figure it out um, is really exciting to me. And so that's how I got to uh, Lean Data. So it's my second stint with a Shasta portfolio company and have been here ever since. So... Going back to your time at Yahoo, you know, you mentioned that you kept getting promoted. If you're thinking about why, you know, why, because you mentioned, you know, you, you were in the interview process, it was a lively floor at Hot Jobs, you know, everything was, was fantastic. But also, I'm sure you also said uh, that you recognized in your first job that you wanted to be a sales manager at one point. So when you think about what you were doing really, really well, whether it was intuition or whether it was feedback or coaching that was being given to you, what do you attribute that to that people just kept giving you more responsibility? What do you think you're really, really good at when it comes to leading teams and managing people? I think at the end of the day, and this sort of, I also have coached youth sports and stuff. I think that I'm able to get the most potential out of an individual. So I think that, you know, and, and I'm very passionate about it, too. So the opportunity to work with someone, whether they're early stage, later stage or wherever in their career and help them realize their potential, I think has allowed me to move up. And it's a lot of it has to do with the individuals. But I think, you know, a little a little bit of it is sort of the opportunity that I give them. You know, my belief is to set everybody up for success. I can't make them successful, but I have to give them an opportunity to be successful. And I think that really allowed me to move up because I think people saw that people, people's careers got better because they work for me. Some have surpassed me. Others have 
you know, gone on to be fantastic individual contributors. But I think that that, you know, that's really what I care about. And I think that people managing me saw that and they saw that their team could benefit or, you know, people that I hired could benefit by aligning themselves um, with myself or an, an organization that I was aligned with. So when you say getting the most out of people, and then you also said putting them in a position to succeed, like what is, if, if there's a manager out there listening and they're writing down notes and, and you want to give them three examples of what it means to put someone in a position to succeed, give us those three examples or give us yeah. a, a, an idea. So one is like the... I think you have to be able to show them how to succeed and and that would be done through like training and examples. And then two, I think you really, you have to have an innate sort of positivity and belief that, that they can succeed. So I think, um, and then third, I think that, you know, ongoing coaching and, and just a level of honesty with them to sort of tell them how it is so that they realize you know, one, they know if they're not living up to expectations or they're able to, and then also setting the vision for what taking advantage of your potential looks, looks like. I think a lot of managers, they either don't have the discussion when they're off the mark or they don't set the bar high enough for them to be able to take advantage of it. It's like, Hey, you know, I, I mean, one of the things is I, I don't really celebrate like at, 50% or 70% or even a hundred percent, because I expect my teams or my individuals to like exceed that. You know, we're one of those rare professions where you ring a gong when you do your job, but like, I see that as my job, you know, and I think I expect the people that work for me to, to do that as well. Like you hitting your number is the expectation you going above it. Like let's celebrate that. So I think, you know, as a manager, if you can set sort of the mentality of what, you know, true achievement looks like and then give them a path and coach them to that, you know, it'll go a long way with ensuring that you're getting the full potential out of those folks. Yeah, that's interesting. So speaking to the point of, you know, there's a lot of different theories of quota is your belief. And and I guess broadly defined, one of them is uh, we want 70% quota attainment across the team. Quota is primary is, is a number I need to put into a financial model that helps me hit my target. There's another belief uh, where it's quota is almost like a psychological number. And, you know, it needs to relate obviously to the revenue plan, but really I'm looking for a hundred percent quota attainment by rep, not just meaning, you know, my top two reps over attain and they, they pay for the rest of the team, but I'm really looking for like everybody to overachieve. And as a consequence, the number needs to be low enough to enable that. Would you say you're in the first camp or the second camp? I, I, I think I straddle the line on that. Um, you know, what I actually look for is like 85% attainment or better across 80% of the team. Because I think it's unrealistic to think that, you know, if, if everybody's hitting 100%, your goals are probably too low. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that looking at consistent attainment across reps and then hit it. And as long as that hits your overall 100% team number, I think you're in good shape. And I think you can't ignore one or the other. And one is less important because one, you could have like an all-star and the rest of the team sucks, right? Or, you know, you, you lose focus on what the team should be doing. So I think it's a combination of both and, and managing to both of those metrics. Yeah, that makes sense. 
you know, you were at LinkedIn, but but you've mentioned a few times, and you were at Hot Jobs, obviously big company, but you went to Truebates, and now you're back at you know you've been at Lean Data for five and a half years, but when you started it was zero. Now you guys are into the teens, which is an incredible accomplishment. So, what do you see as the key differences, and what is it that what is it about those very early stages of a company that you're so drawn to? So I I think it's the opportunity to make a true impact. You know, you can be, you know, as you think about your career progression, like you can be a great manager and make an impact on people. But if you go to a larger organization, you may actually not be impacting the business all that much. And so that was sort of what I felt at LinkedIn. Like, hey, as well as I could do, we're talking about a drop in the bucket compared to the overall total revenue. So at an earlier stage company, I think you have a greater opportunity and you can really fail. And I think having the opportunity to fail forces you to innovate and move quickly. Like when I joined Lean Data, we did not have the product vision we had today. And actually the first product we had, I wasn't able to sell. So I was going to resign. But in the time between when we had the meeting set up with our VC and the time, um, (laughs) you know, when, when I had decided that I would leave, uh, I came up with an idea for the product. And I remember sitting there sort of, you know, being pretty melancholy because I was going to have to tell my wife I left LinkedIn for a startup that didn't work out. Uh, and then this idea pops in my head. I run over to the head of product and the head of engineering, you know, two of the 12 employees at the time. And I said, hey, if you can build this, I can sell it. And that was to take the lead to account matching and then all these potential matches and just visualize it. Help me make ADRs more efficient, right? Take one step out of their day. I can go sell that. And so they built that in like 24 hours. And we went out and we sold 30 deals of that for like next to nothing. But all we had to do was prove that we were onto something. So that meeting turned into me resigning to launching, to explaining this new product. So I think that, you know, that really as close as I've been today to sort of my founder moment. And, you know, at the same time doing what I love, which is, you know, working with people, developing them and closing deals. That's uh, that's an amazing story. Um, do you feel like you still have the same risk appetite? You know, you mentioned children, you mentioned a family, you know, d- does that impact your point of view on how much risk you can take? And I mean, cause it does feel like a, a, a big risk if you're going from LinkedIn to a super early stage company, how do you think about your personal risk profile as uh, you know, as you get older and as your career advances? Well, um, personally, I'm really lucky to have a phenomenal wife who uh, has also worked at startups, and she's actually been at an IPO, and I haven't. So that takes some of the financial <laughs> burden off. Um, but you know, I, I think like everything is a is a balance. You know, it's never not risky. The only real risk at going to an earlier stage company, a middle stage company, or a later stage company is that you may have to find another job. And if you're confident in your abilities um, and you have something to add. You know, that's really the only risk. Compensation might be a little lower, but they make up for that, make up for that inequity. So I don't actually think it's all that much of a risk. It comes down to what environment allows you to be the most successful and ultimately happy. Yeah, I think your your point is well made that, you know, you just have to be prepared to find another job. And if you can do that, then it's not really that risky if you can get the right experience. One of the questions I have, you know, so we, we put together like a little one sheet and, and there's a question that I ask that I'm just curious on your answer on, which is I ask, what's a commonly held piece of wisdom in startup land that you think is total bullshit? 
Uh, and you, you, you mentioned something about sort of like the zero to 5 million, five to 20, walk us through your perspective on, on, on that answer and tell us a little bit about the context. Yeah. So I think every, every VC and every sort of early stage startup goes through these different phases. There's like, you know, zero to one, maybe one to five, you know, five to 20 or five to 10 and sales leaders get typecasted as a certain type of leader. And so, you know, in my case, they're like, yeah, you can do zero to five. And so from personal experience, I think investors, you know, they're looking to mitigate risk in their investment. So they always want someone who has done it before given the opportunity. But what happens is you could be doing just fine as a zero to five guy, raise a series B and then say, okay, we want to go faster. We're going to bring in someone from the outside who's done this before without giving the person that's been in there an opportunity. So I was really fortunate that um, this happened to me, but they kept me around. And so when we had raised Series B, we had brought on a, um, a CRO for six months and, you know, great guy, but unfortunately it, it didn't, it didn't work out. And the, the business actually took a step backwards. Uh, when I took the t- team back on, we were actually, actually able to get a lot of things right, get get things back on track and then um, double the revenue and put us back on a new trajectory. So I would say to, you know, the VCs that are listening, I was like, if you have someone that's really good, give them an opportunity. Don't just typecast someone without giving them a fair shot. I started my networking group, the Revenue Collective, exactly partially for that point. So I completely agree with you. When when you think about that, you know, and by the way, the the brief CRO stint, whether you know, whether whoever it is, is very, very common because, you know, integrating new people into an organization that already has a culture and a way of doing business is actually much harder, particularly at the senior levels. So what do you think you did different? We don't need to, you know, reflect too much on, on on the person, whoever they were, but, you know, what is it that you think you did when you took over the team that helped drive that that business forward? You mentioned that, you know, you pride yourself on operational efficiency. Right. Talk to us about, you know, what do you think are the examples of operational efficiency that we could find in Lean Data? So, yeah. So one thing is we went back to, to really doubling down on being account-based from a sales perspective. So, you know, rather than cover every geography we use data to figure out who has the highest propensity to buy amongst our target accounts. And then what we did is said, let's just cover those because right now, like, and let me ask you, let me interrupt you real quick. So what data is it? Big Salesforce customers? Cause they must be having, you know, they must be swearing the most about lead to account mapping. So absolutely. So for us, uh, we're built completely on Salesforce. So they had to have Salesforce, but we really solve a lead routing problem. So one of the data points we need is people with lead volume and then complex selling motions. So the more functions you have, like SDR, ADR, AE, field AE, account manager, channel sales, that makes your routing requirements more complex. So we look for businesses that have those criteria, and you can get that through job titles on LinkedIn, size of the sales team. But the other piece that we had always missed out on was lead volume. So you can be totally complex, but if you have no leads, you don't really need us either. So um, we found a data provider that tries to equate how much a company is spending on Google AdWords because AdWords translate to leads. Um, So with those, you know, generalizing sort of those three data points, 
helped us be more methodical in who we get after. And like at our stage, I don't have to sell to everybody. And so it's a lot easier for me to, to spend um, a more focused effort with fewer reps after better accounts than to just say, hey, let's call everybody in the Southeast and figure out, you know, if lean data is the right fit. That makes a tremendous amount of sense. Was there a trigger you were specifically looking for if, if they fit those three demographic profiles? So the, the trigger is something that we've sort of struggled with. That, that's the hard part for our business because it is sort of infrastructure. But, um, you know, expanding the revenue ops uh, sort of domain or functionality, seeing sort of people come into that role uh, helps a lot because we really sit at the intersection of sales and marketing. So potentially like adding marketing automation or seeing a spike in ad spend means that there's increased volume or increased hiring in certain roles could be trigger events as well. And then we know that, hey, with more people comes more complexity, more complexity with more data comes more complexity. You're starting to look a lot like the people we're helping today and we can help you be more efficient. Yeah. It's it's really smart. When when uh, the one to one SDR to uh, account executive ratio is not common, uh, it's obviously great for the AEs. Are you um, are you on a tight leash with the CFO to you know make sure unit economics and CAC to LTV are holding up, or have you run the numbers yourself and you feel like you know the math and and you know it, it works? It's, not, it's fin- I mean, I, I realize it's not sustainable. But I think as you're as we're building out the channel, we've probably over-indexed on ADR spend versus marketing spend. So over time, as our brand builds, obviously we're going to get more efficiencies from every from other leverage points within the business. So I fully expect you know that ratio to go down, and then you'll see some of that spend on headcount shift to you know our channel programs, marketing programs, or other ways that are just more efficient. But at the beginning, you can't be outbound hustlers. There. Yeah. I mean, you need the business and you need yeah. to demonstrate that there's something there and then, yeah. and then we can shift the spend. Now you've, you're also a huge proponent, you know, you keep you both in terms of what you mentioned about Yahoo and about being, you know, putting people in a position to win also being a youth uh, sports coach, but it, it's clear that you're a believer in kind of hustle over experience. Talk to us about your philosophy because so many people as the companies grow you know, to exactly to the zero to five and five to 20 point, there becomes, uh, you know, a profile that they need to hit for different positions and a certain amount of years of experience. What's your perspective on kind of um, experience versus versus raw talent and versus hunger? And, and how, how do you build a team? Yeah, so I don't want to discredit experience. I just think that you shouldn't overlook the folks that grow up in your organization that have no experience. So, you know, what I figured out over time and what I've done with my ADRs, and it's hard because we're constantly turning over that team because we're doing a lot of promotions. Half my AEs today have been promoted from the ADR ranks. uh, And we've also promoted like three or four ADRs over to the CSM ranks. And so what what I realized that happens when you promote internally from an ADR to AE, you can start to transition them in way before they actually take on the role of AE. And so um, you you can almost have a fully ramped rep with a full pipeline ready to go when you transition them to AE. And so um, from a metrics perspective and from a cost perspective, it's a lot better. And like culturally, it's just phenomenal to be able to take someone 
potentially right out of school that doesn't have any bad habits. Teach them, you know, first and foremost about ICP and personas as an ADR, how to connect with people and get in the door, and then take them to the next level and help them understand how to work a sales process, negotiate and close and, and demo. So for me, it's something that's worked really well. I think you have to supplement it with people from experience. But I think that, you know, if there if there's sales leaders out there or managers out there that are like, oh, I'm, I'd rather just hire completely from the outside because I need someone with X, Y, Z. I think that you're probably overlooking a great resource. And I'd say that a lot of companies actually don't believe in promoting their ADRs to AEs. That's why there's so many great ones out there that have like 12 months of experience that you know, would rather bounce than stick around because they know that they're not going to get an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, one question I have for you, you mentioned building a pipeline before they're promoted. Now they're paired with an AE. How do you deal with a situation where, you know, the AE maybe isn't where they want to be from a quota perspective and they feel like the SDR are siphoning off leads to build their personal pipeline in anticipation of promotion. How do you manage that tension? So we're, we're a team first and foremost. And, you know, it, you know, like I said, the, the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name in the back. And I think we try to hire AEs with that vision that buy into that type of culture. And so they understand that at a certain point, their ADR, you know, if they're any good, will want to move to an AE or CSM role. And so... It is a difficult scenario that you talk about where they may not be doing as well. But what we do is we limit the ADR on the new business side to creating like five opportunities. So it's still just a fraction of their time. And I think if you, you know, if you walk around sales floors or you talk to reps, like most reps have more time and aren't totally efficient with their time. So it's, it's easy to go back to the rep and have a conversation like, you know, hey, me taking 10% of your ADR's time to give them an opportunity to develop and contribute to the company. You know, if, if you can't see why that's good for us overall as, you know, shareholders in this business, then, you know, it's probably not the right cultural fit for that type of AE. Well, yeah. Or again, I mean, maybe I'm sure there's a lot of folks that don't even take the time to to give that explanation. And I think that, you know, to your point about being a, a great leader and manager, if you take the time to give the explanation and the context, that probably goes a very long way with the AE. Yeah. I mean, and it works for us. You know, it may not work at scale, you know, if you have 180 ADRs, um, but, you know, it is something that's worked really well for us in the early days is like one, it's we're down in Sunnyvale. It's, it's hard to hire reps. You know, there's just a lot, you know, we're, it's not like the city where you can walk out and find a sales rep standing next to you on the, on the corner. Um, so, you know, we have challenges when it comes to getting to, to finding great folks. And so it's in our best interest to give people opportunities to develop, get better, you know, and everybody wants an opportunity to prove themselves. Obviously, we have many folks in the Bay Area, but many folks that are not. So explain to everybody, First of all, why does a company put themselves in Sunnyvale when more young people are living in the city? Is it to recruit great engineers? And then explain to everybody that's out there listening the distance between basically the Valley and Sunnyvale and Mountain View and those those cities and uh, and downtown San Francisco. Sure. So let me go through the um, geography first. Um, so San Francisco is, is the tip of the peninsula. And then if you were to go south, about 40 miles, you'd hit San Jose. Historically, 
you know, the innovation started in San Francisco, but about 10 years ago, a lot of the, fa- the fast-growing startups, especially around SaaS because of what Salesforce was doing, moved to San Francisco. A suburb of, of San Jose is Sunnyvale, where we are located, which historically has been like chip manufacturers, like really old school tech. So we have like AMD is near us and applied materials and all these tech companies you wouldn't necessarily associate <laughs> as tech anymore. They're almost like manufacturing companies probably. But anyways, we're in Sunnyvale because our founders are a little bit older. They have families. You know, when, when people in the city have families, they, they move to the peninsula or the South Bay because there's a little bit more land. It's still incredibly expensive. But it's a different way of life. And I think, you know, the city has actually very few children in it. And so because our founders have families, they started the company probably closer to where they live, which is Sunnyvale. There is an advantage that if family type people are what you're looking for, you can get more of that. But it does make a challenge to hire the fresh right out of school because a lot of those sort of SDR type recent college grads gravitate to where the action is, which is you know, more so in San Francisco. Yeah, it does. It does. It, it feels difficult. I hear you. Listen, we're, we're almost at the end of our time together and this has been a great conversation. One of the things we like to do though, is we like to figure out what are your influences and you know, what is the, who are the people that have had an impact on you and what are some of the, you know, the books or the, or the content that you consume that's had an impact. So when you think about, Specifically, um, you know, sales and marketing leaders, because we, you know, it's it's just important, I think, to spread the love around. Who are the people that you really respect, or who's the person that you really respect when you're thinking about people that have have had an impact on your career? Yeah, so there's there's a couple folks that I had exposure to at at Yahoo, uh, and most recently that was our GM Chris Merritt, who's now the CRO of Cloudflare. Um, and he comes from more of an operational background. So I think I learned a lot of operational excellence from him and how to manage the overall team and, and manage through change. Prior to that, I had exposure to some really phenomenal leaders. One is the COO at Yelp, who was their first head of sales, Jed Nockman. He always built phenomenal teams with a great culture. And so I think I, I learned how to how to treat people from watching Jed and then there was another sales leader who's the head of sales at Indeed that was there that was Nolan Ferris. Um, and he was just, you know, watching him balance sort of tough, you know, having tough conversations to get the most out of reps is something that he did really well. And so I, I learned that from him. And then, you know, right now I have um, uh, an adv- we have an advisor named Todd Rulon Miller, who's actually featured in these PBS specials because he was the first head of sales at Netscape. Oh, wow. Uh, and he was also at Next Computing. So he worked with like Mark Andreessen, you know, Steve Jobs to build hmm. these businesses. So much more experienced than me, you know, has sat on multiple boards, but getting the perspective across sort of breadth of these companies that have really become game changers, like think about Netscape, right? <laughs> the first web browser. I know. Um, you know, having exposure to work with him has been helpful as well. And and so I think those are those are the type of leaders that that I have um, been fortunate to have come across in my career that have really made an impact. That's fantastic. Any uh, parting words, life principles, life mottos? Give us something inspirational as we uh, as we head into our day and the rest of the week. 
So I just talked about this at our sales kickoff. And I think that, you know, all of us have chosen a specific opportunity. And, you know, it's really all you can ask for is to have an opportunity. So I, I would challenge everybody that's listening to the podcast and, you know, your opportunity is unique. You know, what are you going to do to take advantage of it? Right. And how special is the opportunity that you have? Because you don't, they don't always come along very often. So if you're somewhere special and it truly is unique, take full advantage of that. Figure out what you're going to do, you know, to make sure you don't miss it. Like opportunities don't come along that often, especially like an opportunity like I have. So I'm always thinking about how am I not going to fuck this up? Right. So, um, <laughs> and take advantage of it. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's incredible the opportunities that we have. And I think that like, sometimes we need to step back and just say like, Hey, how, how wonderful is it to even have it in the first place? And then how am I going to take advantage of it? I love it. And you're right. A recurring theme of this podcast and of life in general is when opportunity knocks, you got to answer that door. You got to go. Don't think too much about it because the window doesn't stay open uh, very long. And I've just mixed a door and a window in terms of uh, the metaphors that I'm combining. Um, if folks are listening to this, Brian, and, and they want to get in touch or they want to uh, apply for a job or, or just you know seek you out for advice, are you open to that? And Absolutely. if so, what's your favorite mechanism uh, for, for being contacted? Is it email? Is it LinkedIn? How, how should we reach out to you? Uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or you can email me as well. It's brian at leandatainc.com. Awesome. Brian at leandatainc.com. Brian, we'll, we'll talk to you on Friday with Friday Fundamentals. But for now, thanks so much for being part of the Sales Hacker Podcast. And, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Sam. It was great to be here. Hi, folks. Sam Jacobs. This is Sam's Corner. Another fantastic interview, this time with Brian Burkett, uh, SVP of Sales at Lean Data. Brian was there from the first customer at zero. And now they are in the mid-teens in ARR and growing nicely with a lot of operational efficiency. And Brian talked a lot about what it means to be a great manager and how he handled that. And I think he talked a lot about helping people see the potential for themselves, helping clarify expectations. We talk a lot about that on the pod and then push it, putting them in a position to succeed. And I think when we, when we drilled down, we figured out that being put in a position to succeed means getting the right training, getting the right call coaching and creating a coaching organization. So certainly a platform like our sponsor Chorus is a way to develop a training culture within an organization that puts people in a position to succeed. Of course, you have to have a close alignment with marketing because you need enough leads to succeed. And, and I think it's also about just understanding the value proposition in the ICP and focusing on the right accounts, the right opportunities. They talked about how, you know, they went from sort of a spray and pray approach. They really focused on, they created smaller opportunities, smaller territories, but territories of the right companies. And so they, you know, if, if you listened, he said, we were looking for people that used a lot of Salesforce. So big Salesforce customers, because obviously lean data sits on top of Salesforce and people that generated a lot of leads, a lot of leads with complex selling motions that sits on top of Salesforce, that was their three, kind of the three criteria that needed to be met for their ICP. The other thing that I would say that, that Brian said, you know, we all live in a world of heuristics, mental models that, ha that enable us to, um, to go through the, 
reality. Uh, in fact, most people say consciousness itself is a mental model. This We are constantly parsing information and, and basically taking shortcuts so that we can operate in the world. Obviously, if we, uh, we ingested every piece of information that was out there, every piece of data, every sense that our sensors detected, we would be overwhelmed. So our brains are in the business of ignoring lots of things and focusing on models and shortcuts that enable us to get shit done. But uh, one of those areas where we sometimes fall short is this idea of experience. And, you know, you hear about it when, you, when you're talking about, uh, is she uh, the zero to $5 million CRO or the five to $20 million CRO? You hear about it when you're, when you're sort of being typecast. The, the challenge that you face as you grow as a company is that you think what you're doing is raising the bar, but you're raising the floor and lowering the ceiling at the same time when you specifically hire and focus only on resume to the detriment of hunger, motivation, and capability. And that is why so many early stage companies, they have these employees that are sort of jack of all trades. They know the product incredibly well. At Axial, it was Dan Lee. Uh, we called him Hawkeye. He was the eye in the sky that understood everything about the business. Now, Dan came to that business fresh out of undergrad from Harvard, admittedly, but he would not have fit a profile for a head of revenue operations or a head of sales. He just didn't have the right experience. So everybody was wandering around, you know, five years later saying, how do we find the next Dan Lee? Well, you, by, by mandating a certain level of experience, you, you are, you are precluding yourself from the opportunity to find the next great hungry young person that can do amazing things within your organization. That doesn't mean that experience isn't worthwhile. And if it wasn't worth anything at all, I would be unemployed permanently because all I have is experience at this point, but, um, maybe a little bit of knowledge, but, but just think about that as you scale and as you grow and look back at your job descriptions. Are you asking for five to seven years of experience? Do you know what that means? Is that, is that really what you need? Maybe sometimes it is. Sometimes you do need that experience, but I would stress test the experience requirements on a job description, especially if they're being driven by HR and not by the sales team or the marketing team that needs those folks, because there's lots and lots of people that come into an organization with absolutely no skills or experience at all, and they become all-stars. And if you're asking yourself three, five, seven years later, why can't we find another Dan Lee? There's a reason. It's because you are not letting yourself interview. You are not giving yourself the opportunity to develop and grow the next Dan Lee. Uh, we don't know if Dan Lee's listening to this. He's somewhere in Denver, Colorado. But Dan, if you're out there, we love you. Now, uh, for show notes and for uh, all of the things, head on over to saleshacker.com. You can find a full list of our podcasts and um, you can see previous guests and listen to all kinds of great stuff. You can also, of course, I'm supposed to read copy that says you can find us on iTunes or Google Play, but if you're listening to this, you know where you can find us because you're listening to it. Sort of self-evident. At any rate, if you enjoyed the show, please share it with your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, or elsewhere. Get a great idea or guest for the show. Get in touch with me. Find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs or on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash the word in and then slash Sam F. Jacobs. We'd love to hear from you. Big shout out to our sponsors for this episode, Chorus, the leading conversation intelligence platform. Please give Chorus a shot. They're a great company. And Outreach, the leading sales engagement platform, another fantastic company. So Chorus and Outreach are the reason that we're able to give you this, uh, this amazing content. We'll see you next time and I hope to see you at Unleash in March in San Diego.